Hi, my name is Dana Gonzalez. I'm the director cinematographer of Fargo Season 4, and you're listening to The Go Creative Show. Hey, everyone. My name is Ben Consoli. I'm a director and owner of BC Media Productions. This is The Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. So today we're talking with Dana Gonzalez. He is the director of photography for Fargo season four, and he also directed a few of the episodes as well. And we get into all of that in the episode, as well as a lengthy discussion about how he basically recreated Kodachrome, Autochrome, and Tri-X film stock to give the show three different looks. There's a lot of information jammed into this episode, and you guys are going to love it because Dana really gets into the weeds about how he creates these three unique looks through camera, lensing, lighting, and more. This is a fun one, and I cannot wait to share it with you guys. But before we get there, I want to encourage you to follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube, and also subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. I also want to thank our sponsors, MZ, Education for Creatives, and Post Lab, Stress-Free Collaboration in Final Cut Pro and Premiere. Now let's dive right in because there is so much to talk about with the director of photography and director of Fargo season four, Dana Gonzalez. So I'm here with Dana Gonzalez, director of photography of Fargo season four. He also directed a couple of episodes as well, and we're going to talk about all of that. Dana, thank you so much for coming back on the Go Creative Show. Yeah, great. Hey, Ben, uh, you know, we started uh, the first season of Fargo. I think I was in a hotel room in Albuquerque and it was over uh, your podcast. So evolution brings us here to where we're doing a live video. I am completely obsessed with this show. I mean, there's just I, I really think it's my favorite show. I'm obsessed with it. Every season that comes out, it's it lives up to my expectations and my expectations are so high, especially now having three seasons already under your belt and now going into the fourth. It's just so good. So congratulations on yet another fantastic season. Yeah. You know, thank you. Uh, the fourth season of a um, show that has a new story and new characters. Every, every season is, is a hard thing. And to, um, you know, then we have an audience that has their favorite seasons. So it's always tough to, A, just great, make a great, great uh, additional season and, and B, uh, make one that hopefully tops someone else's favorite season. So there's, there's a, lot of, there's a lot, of, lot of challenges there, for sure. Yeah, you guys don't have the luxury of relying on characters that people already know and love. Like, you're creating a brand new show Every single year, yeah, it's we're bringing a new show. It, every first episode is a pilot. We have to build it from the ground, world building from the ground up. And um, this year, coming going to Chicago, uh, which which was different than the, the previous three seasons where we shot in Calgary. So we had a little bit of a foundation with just the city, the the crew, so many things. And this year going to Chicago, completely uh, new crew for the most part, and um, new surroundings, uh, being in America to tell American story. So, you know, there was there was those challenges. And, you know, we don't really get the pilot money as, you know, we get we definitely get more money every season, but it's not like uh, pilot money where, you know, you know that first episode is just going to get this 
huge amount of cash to build sets and all these things. Yet we that's what we do. Why? So is it traditionally you get more money for a pilot than the rest of that? I guess the whole season yeah. costs more than the pilot. It must obviously because there's eleven more episodes or ten more episodes. But traditionally, pilots get the most. Yeah, I mean, pilots are are at least the first episodes of a season one of any show is going to get more days, normally like twice the amount of days uh, to shoot, and um, and then you're you're building, you're getting X amount of money to build these sets that obviously are amortized over the ten episodes. Yet, but you are getting this this chunk of money to build sets. And um, and that just kind of starts itself in 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 the first episode. So when you're doing like a traditional season two or three, hopefully there's a standing set or five standing sets. So now you have a, a show that's amortized over five seasons or ten seasons. I mean, if you could imagine NYPD Blue, they have their uh, headquarters, their courtroom, whatever, ten seasons that that's been bought and paid for. It's it's just you know money for the studio. So we basically build these sets every year, tear them down. <laughs> and, you know, and all, with that comes R&D. There's tons of prep and R&D that happens with the production designer, with myself, uh, you know, all the costumes change, uh, you know, every, there's just so much startup cost. And, uh, you know, and to be honest, I think MGM and, and FX does give us, you know, a little bit more money than, you know, than a se- most season two or threes, but, um, you know, but it's still, it's still season four of Fargo and, and they still have to answer to, uh, you know, their board and then, you know, everybody. So, uh, it, it makes it a challenge. We did it with Legion, the same thing. Legion was a new world building every season. So we're very used to it. And that's the good thing. Well, this year, so much is different. Like you said, I mean, it's a completely different story, different location, different crews you guys are working with. And you're basically recreating the 1950s Kansas City uh, in Chicago. So when you got this script and you started hearing about what the new season was going to be, what were you most excited about? Well, even before I got the script, um, we were doing Legion season three and um, Noah brought me into his office, Noah Hawley, and, and told me about season four and, and just some of the kind of context of what it's about and uh, some of the, what, what he was thinking of. And that it was, that was even the start of like the first visual conversation and just, you know, it was, you know, it was just like, here's here, you know, he was very excited. He was, he was actually, I would say he was more excited than I'd seen him in a long time about, um, well, it was, it was great to see him excited about season four in that way, for sure. So we talked about it, and then I the script was just starting to be written, um, the scripts, uh, plural. So um, I think he just told me a little broad story uh, arc of it, and you know it was super exciting. Um, it was, and we talked about shooting it in Chicago in that very meeting. Uh, it was a bit of a challenge because we had shot in Canada prior to three seasons, and there's a certain amount of money that we would be leaving on the table in Canada by going to, uh, you know, shooting in the U S but you know, we could not tell this story. I mean, you've seen it and you, we could not tell this story without that kind of Americana 
Canada just doesn't have Americana. Mm. And um, Illinois, I feel, to me, is such a Americana state. Like, it reminds me of um, everywhere we went, like even on the outskirts of uh, Chicago, it reminded me of like um, geography class in elementary school. It just did, like, like the pictures in the textbook and all these things that when I grew up, at least, um, that's what I felt like I was looking at that. that. That was like, this is America. So we couldn't have made it anywhere else. So he was talking about that at that point. That made it exciting because I just, I had never shot in Chicago. I'd never even been in Chicago at that point. So it was just exciting that, that, cause I, you know, the locations has always been a character in Fargo. Yeah. Um, the snow being, a, a definitely the number one kind of geographical kind of, uh, con, uh character, but, um, you know, I just knew like the city and what it was going to offer and, you know, telling an American story in a, in a, in a very Americana city, it was going to be very important. Yeah. And aside from, you know, the locations in the new city, you, the cast you had, I mean, I know at the beginning, you probably didn't know who your cast was going to be at those, you know, in those early meetings, but I mean, this cast is unreal. You got Chris Rock, Jesse Buckley, Jason Schwartzman, Salvatore Esposito, who I fell in love with. Uh, yeah. Being Italian myself, I like I loved the 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 craziness of these Italian families. It was the best. Um, but was there like who were you most excited to work with? Just kind of, you know, before you even stepped on set, just looking at these list of characters, who were you most excited to work with? I mean that that is. That, you you kind of prepped me with this question, and and I and I've been thinking about it, but it, it's so tough. And I, I I'll probably say this about all, everything I do, but look, Chris Chris Rock was part of the show when Noah first told me about it. So he was okay. the he was he was the one kind of anchor that and that and that was that was really interesting to me. So that was like wow, I, I love Chris, and and um, now after working with him, I love him even more. But so that was incredible. Um, you know, I'm a huge Jason Schwartzman fan. Uh, I, I Rushmore was is in my top five movies. I just love the movie. Uh, it, it, I feel like it changed my life. I feel like when I saw it, it's just like uh, I identified a little bit with with uh, with him with his character. And um, so that was a big highlight. I mean, Jesse Jesse Buckley, uh, who I had seen uh, her work. Uh, prior, but I, I didn't know her, and just, she just you know showed up day one and just like blew blew me away at just her her talent. Um, Salvatore is someone that I've been I watched Gamora, and uh, I, I was blown away by his his uh, arc because I, I don't know if you've seen that show, but you know season one he plays this like you know just a kid, a stupid kid that just doesn't do any much, and then two he like blows up and kills everybody. So, um, <laughs> you know, I, I was, so I was a, a fan of his and, and, um, all the Italians, I just were fans. I've seen their shows and, and, um, you know, Glenn Thurman, funny enough, uh, did some work with my father. My father had a van conversion shop, a custom car shop. That's what it was. It was a custom car shop in the, uh, seventies and eighties. And Glenn Thurman was a, a client of his and got some work done. And, and I met Glenn Thurman, so I was probably 15 or 16 or whatever at the time. 
And um, and I reminded him. Uh, I saw him at the Emmys first, and I told him, "Hey, we're working together." And then, and then um, when we worked together, I said, "Hey, I I actually met you when I was 15," and and so, and that was really incredible to to work with him because he's just such a great actor. Um, you know, Jack Huston is another. Just, I mean, where do I, what does it end? I, I mean, uh, Tim, Timothy Oliphant is un fucking unbelievable. I worked with him on Swordfish, uh, probably in the beginning of his career. Um, and he was just amazing. I, it's, it's like all the Fargo's it's, yeah, it's tough because like you just said, so good. Well, that's, that's one of the thing about Fargo's as a series is they always have that, that cast of characters that are like kind of unexpected in a way, like they're not unexpected because they're not, it, it has nothing to do with like a perception of talent, but for some reason you guys do such a great job of putting, putting actors in these roles that people don't necessarily think like on its face makes sense. It's weird. And you're just able to bring out these incredible performances. And we're going to certainly get to that when we talk about your directing. But, you know, thinking about this cast, did anybody surprise you? Was there anybody there that you, that, you know, you maybe had a perception of or an idea of what they were going to bring and they brought something totally different? I mean, I think they all did that. I mean, I, I mean, like Chris, we can even take Chris Rock, who, who, you know, I remember being affected by his performance in New Jack City. Like he played the Pookie, that you know, the crack addict. And I remember saying, "Wow, this this guy can act," you know. And um, and then I've seen him in a few things, and and I think as you see in the in the in the series this year, he, you know, his performances get better and better and better and better. And and so watching that um, again, Jesse Buckley, somebody that. Um, I didn't particularly know uh, her range that far, and her range is unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, we're we're talking about definitely a Meryl Streep level actress that uh, who you know endless. Who knows what's going to happen with her? She's just going to explode. She's certainly a standout um, from the series, definitely. Yeah, yeah. So you know, that, I mean, that that's again, I, that's a tough one because some some of the actors I knew their work. Some of them I didn't, uh, um, and um, you know it, it was just a joy to watch the whole thing. I mean, and the, I got I want to make a shout out to all the local Chicago casting that we did. Yeah, Un, unbelievable, unbelievable. Like if, if the MVP, I guess I want to give it is to the Chicago <laughs> local casting was unbelievable, and they were great because Chicago has a um, big theater uh, uh group you know of actors and they do a lot of theater there so we were able just to um to cast so many people that were just incredible um you know and we couldn't have done that anywhere else in the world so just a big shout out to all of the, all of them and they, they were they were the standouts because when you have somebody that shows up with that's been cast that has a the right fargo look or whatever and then they just they become someone you love in the show uh, that that that's you know blows you away i want to talk about the look of fargo season 4 and start kind of start start from the beginning you're you know noah talks to you about what the season's going to be the time period it takes place where in the world it takes place what do you do with that information what's your next step um well like i said we had that first conversation and the first conversation uh, I brought up something that he, he talked about. Uh, Noah talked about 
I think he talked about mug shots. Hmm. And he, t- he talked, you know, and, and as you see in the first uh, episode, everybody is kind of given their mug shot moment and it, it describes who they were and why they were in jail or why, they, why, they're, uh, why they're in crime or what they did in crime. And um, so we talked about that a little bit. And then, and then, you know, I expanded by saying that, you know, mug shots in the 20s and 30s and, you know, or 40s. It, it's funny because maybe they're called mug shots because people were like, they literally would smile or, or put on a, a face, a pose, because cameras then were, you know, when someone took a picture of you, it really meant something, mm. right? In, in those days, like today, we, we have phones and everybody's taking pictures. We're almost trying to get away from it. That was quite the opposite in those days. So I think even a mugshot was like, well, my mom may see this or whatever. Or, you know, and if you're, if you're a, a you know, career crook, you probably want your mom to see it, right? Because you're going to show up in the paper. So you, you, you give it a little bit more portrait quality to it. So I said, there's something about that in, in the way that we will, I think the way we should kind of look at how we cover these scenes, it's a very abstract theme, but it was just literally like, you know, we spent the last previous three seasons talking about the Cohenisms and the, and the way, you know, the Cohens sh- shoot their projects and everything. And this season, we are, you know, we've felt we earned the right to maybe break that a little bit. And I don't know if you've noticed that, or I think, I think I've read some reviews where people do kind of notice that. And it wasn't like, um, we want to change it up, uh, radically, but it was just like, you know, if I'm using large format, uh, lenses and, and camera format, well, well, I'm sure we'll talk about that more. So, um, that already changed things for me because of the way that the camera captures images and the lens sizes and all that stuff. So it was, it was already not a direct translation from the previous season. So if, if the previous seasons, we, we used a 29 and a 40 millimeter lens all the time, it was going to be different this season because of the large format. So, you know, we started using longer lenses on, on kind of exteriors to, you know, help the period. I thought that would be great. And, uh, and I, I just think even the way we we captured uh, some of the scenes, and and maybe there was a slight portrait part of it and a slight voyeuristic part of it together that came together. Again, it was a very abstract conversation in the beginning, and then you know we, we left it for a while and I thought about it. There was a point where we thought about shooting the entire season black and white. Uh, we didn't obviously, um, and then. Basically, when I got the the first two scripts that Noah Hawley was directing, that started kind of like I think I was already thinking about the uh, the Kodachrome that look that I wanted to do, you know. So, like I've talked to you before, like the season two of Fargo. To me, when you start talking about a period of of you know years of what a show takes place. You have to start talking about what that looked like and what and the perception of what that looked like. I mean, obviously, somebody born in 2000 may not have a their their only perception is the images that they may have seen from 1950, and then you have people that grew up in in you know the 50s or people that grew up in the 60s that were more familiar with that. 
So to me, it starts with what did that look like? And, and what that looked like is there's, there's only certain colors that were used. There's a certain texture to those images. Uh, Kodachrome being something that was the kind of best color film and it had the best color rendition. So we have a lot of, a lot of images out there with that kind of true color rendition of that era. And uh, I wanted to capture that. Now, it's doing Kodachrome with a digital capture is not easy. Uh, I've, I've tried to do it uh, unsuccessfully uh, in still images. Um, there's a couple presets out there that are, that are pretty damn good, but you know uh, they're a little forced. So taking on a, a whole season and trying to give it this Kodachrome look and really, really make it work was, a, was the big challenge. And, and then in the first episode, we also have a, another look for the, the, that's, is for the material that deals with before the 50s, uh, the 20s and 30s. Yeah. That that I thought we should do this autochrome look, which is another for early color. It's like the first color film photography. And again, I wanted it to I wanted it to be like an image that you would Google, and if you do Google autochrome, and, you, and I wanted what we shot in Fargo to look like that image. So it was another challenge, and it was a combination of early work with my um, colorist. Tony Diamore at Picture Shop, and um, and then testing with filters and LUTs and show LUTs, and um, and then bringing in wardrobe color, produ- uh, production design color, and and talking to the war- the costumer and the and the uh, production designer about how we deal with these colors and how we don't overwhelm the sets with everybody competing and so it's like somebody you know either the wardrobe is that color and the and the the production design is a little more muted or it goes the other way the wardrobe's a little muted more muted and the production design art direction is a little bit more colorful just so it, it would always work because otherwise you just compete and i think all those things together is what creates the look and it, so it was a it was kind of a big undertaking at that point. And, you know, you really need to get everybody on board. So, you know, the strength of my relationship with Noah is, you know, we, we see eye to eye pretty quickly. And I mean, the autochrome, I'll just give you a little context into the autochrome. So we started prepping uh, the first episode and we were going to go walk into our first production design wardrobe meeting and which was basically kind of the palette of of what season four would be and uh i had already we had already talked a lot about the kodachrome and that was easy like here's the images of kodachrome this is what we're we're you know what we want to do but um i hadn't flushed out the autochrome look yet so i brought in a book to his office and i said i want you to check out this book and um it had the autochrome he looked at it we spent about three minutes with it. Great. We walked across the hall into the meeting. One of the first things he says is, "Here's what we here's what we'll be doing for the autochrome look." So that's 
that's kind of our shorthanded way that Noah, Holly, and I uh, do business. Um, you know, and that that comes from different discussions, listening to different things, talking, and then you know, and and he's such an incredible visualist that that he wants to be presented with the thing that wins. You know, he doesn't want ten options. Like, here's ten things. What do you think? Yeah, he wants someone to pre- present the thing that they number one they think will work, and number two that he agrees will work. And you know, not to say that that always happens where it's like he just accepts it. Normally, what Noah does is you you present him something like that, and then he he takes it further, which is great because that's a that's a starting point. And that autochrome look was in the in the first episode. Sort of before Correct. we get to the 1950s. And I I want to talk just for a couple of minutes about the Kodachrome look and and sort of what what that means to you. Like when you look at these Kodachrome photos that you were looking at as references, what were you looking at in, in sort of pulling out? Like what were the qualities of the photos that you were trying to achieve? Well, anybody who's shot Kodachrome is probably super sad they didn't shoot more. Um, I, I know I am, I, I, you know, I shot a lot of Kodachrome when I was younger and then they, I, you know, you, you didn't think film was ever going to end. So you stopped shooting it for a while. And then all of a sudden they said Kodachrome is no longer, and it is no longer, it will never be. And it, it was a, it was a film that was very lifelike and it just captured skin tones and color, like unbelievably real. And I think that those years, 1950, you know, there was a certain color palette. Cars only came in certain colors. Uh, advertising used certain colors in a, in a in a way. There was it was a it was a much a more controlled palette, and and I think that and it was like geared to to our RGB. You know, it was it was geared to red, green, blue, and and then the obviously the film perfect color balance. And, you know, balanced towards these RGB worlds, you know, it just, it came together like the production design and and wardrobe that I'm talking about, you know? So, um, the photography of Sal Leiter, uh, there's a book called Early Color. That book is like, again, I've been, I've I've had so many things kind of defining moments in my life. And and that was like one of them, like open the book and like, oh my God, this is like every everything I, I want to achieve in my life, the, the photography that Sal Leiter did. And, uh, I mean, I, I know others feel the same. And so for me, like that was like, I could just take that book and any picture of that book and, and say like, okay, I want to achieve this. But like I said, I tried to achieve this in the past with, in still photography, uh, through with, with digital cameras. And it's just, it, it's, imp- it's really hard. Yeah. It's impossible. So, th- so I said, I want to really, win this time and how am I going to do that? So I had to think about it differently. And I basically, with Tony D'Amore's help, um, I, I reverse engineered, I reverse engineered how I would come up with it. So I, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't build the LUTs traditionally. I, I reverse engineered that. I, I don't want to do give, I don't want to give it, I don't want to give up the whole formula, but Kodachrome is black and white film. It's black and white film with color dyes when it's processed. Mm. That so it starts there. So I, 
I basically, that's my, my chemistry, my digital chemistry work starts with that. And that's not how normally you think about LUTs. And I, I said, I'm going to go back and break down the, the chemistry of Kodachrome because the chemistry of Kodachrome is the, re- the very reason why it doesn't exist anymore because it's, it's like caustic and very expensive and bad for the environment. But yet that is why it, it you know, it's like a dye sublimation print. You know, it, it's so special because of the way the process is. So I said, I'm going to break down, reverse engineer the process, and now try to build that back up through the uh, through the LUT process. And and Tony and I did that uh, with Resolve, and then we brought that to the set. And I did a series of tests and makeup tests. And with Ryan McGregor, my DIT, we added a little bit more. And then I did um, I used colored filters, and I. I tested about a hundred different filters, and and I basically went to my um, my main collaborator in uh, in camera gear and and just you know who the, the company that helps me artistically the most uh, Keslo Camera and said I want to see a list of every filter you 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 have, and the good thing is like they bought Claremont Camera. And they bought all their gear, and Claremont Camera had just an incredible amount of uh, filters and and just all kinds of specialty gear. So I said, I want to see every filter that you have. I don't even care if you've seen it or inventory. I want to see everything you possibly. I want to see the Claremont inventory. I want to see everything. My relationship with them is such that they they gave it to me, and I basically just went down a list and I said, I want this, 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 and this, and so. They sent me about 100, maybe plus filters, maybe uh, maybe 200. I forgot exactly how many there were, but of diffusions and, and different colors. And and the ones that I chose, they don't make anymore. So it was very hard to get four. I needed four of them or maybe even six of, of each because of multiple cameras and unit, different units. And, uh, and somehow I found these filters that, worked with the LUT to create this look. Mm. Uh, it, it's it's uh, What a painstaking process. My God. How long did it take you to find the, the perfect formula? Um, I mean, it took many, many months, but it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, it was all progressive. It, you know, I, I, I take a lot of risks, but I, I take a lot of calculated risks. So, you know, again, it, I talked about this before. It's based on math. So I do this mathematical mathematical equations constantly, and and a process of elimination and focusing, and what works, what doesn't work, and so like even in color theory, it, you know, adding a filter that has a certain color content to the mix is going to do something predictable. I mean, it may be too much and and maybe too little, but you know, it's it's a calculated uh, risk. So. Um, you know, it, it's all progressive. I, I think that, you know, Tony D'Amore at Picture Shop would, you know, he was, you know, he was scratching his head a little bit at the beginning because I was, we would, we would take like season three uh, footage or something like that. And we would start working on the LUT. And, you know, it was like, you know, it, you've seen it. It's, it's got a lot of contrast. Yeah. Um, it's got a lot of color pop. I didn't want, I didn't want it to be oversaturated in a, in a, a gaudy way or anything like that. Um, 
I can tell you the LUT basically is like very filmic in that you have to light the, the black areas. And that's what film was. Film is something you, you know, you need more fill, fill light for film. You need, you need like, like film is this, you always need fill light. Even if you don't think you need fill light with film, you need it. I don't use a lot of fill light at all on, on digital photography. Um, and so I was, I knew that I had to make this show LUT because there's no way that I could do it after the fact. If I could just shoot it and then go into uh, color bay and say, make this look like Kodachrome, it would have never worked. It would have yeah, just looked yeah. like everybody else's attempt. And so I needed to show that, that basically, uh, cause I use live grade on the set. So I'm able to, um, see exactly what it looks like. I'm able to, you know, do adjustments, but you know, we needed to see how we, you know, how much light did I have to put in these darker areas? How much light did I, can I extract? Um, how did the wardrobe and the skin tones and the car colors and how, how did they react to the LUT? You know, it was very important. I don't normally use show LUTs. I normally just use a K1S1 LUT and, and do most of the color later, uh, in post. Um, Season three was a process that we talked about in one of your podcasts that was complete, completely different. But again, uh, didn't really deal with it. It dealt a little bit with the show a lot, I guess, because we stripped out the blue spectrum. Um, so we were watching that on the set as well. But but I feel like this one was the probably the most aggressive show lot I've ever made. Uh, and I, I had to do it. As it would have never worked. I got to see it with my own eyes, which thank you so much for allowing me on your set when you were directing. It was an awesome opportunity and really, really fun to see you at work. Um, but I got a chance to talk to your DIT and it's like, it, it was, your whole like DIT system was pretty amazing. It was very in-depth and you had a really accurate like visual of what you were filming the whole time. Like that LUT was so solid. It was, it was it was pretty amazing. I, I've never seen that close between what's on set and what's on the finished product. Yeah. I mean, you know, we could probably use our CDLs and, and, uh, conform our onlines and, and air, air, you know, air the show. You know, the, the thing is that DITs are trying to make every image look the best. That's, and, you know, and a colorist has to match that footage, mm. right? From shot to shot. That that's the difference. And and then when you're and then also the sequencing of scenes. Sometimes we even resequence scenes that differently editorially. So like if I think, oh, we're gonna go into this arc of light to dark and then the next scene starts darker or whatever, sometimes they'll take they'll take that out of context editorially. So um, they have to be able to blended and matches right so that's the kind of the difference and i i know like a lot of dits think that they're doing uh, an incredible job there and they are but they're making that those images perfect and it helps me is like the dits inform me of what i can do and how far i can go yeah. and that's why i like live, live grade and and that's why i like because it really does inform the way the way i how i photograph things I again, I take a lot of risks sometimes with color temperature, and there's just some wacky things that I'm doing based on the situation in front of me, and and as things are unfolding, and so you know, it's just I've done just really kind of crazy low light stuff, and where like you walk into a room and it's you, it's so dark you can barely see, but then you come back to the camera and it looks amazing, 
And that's just a bit of math going on. But sometimes that affects color temperature and everything. And so I'll start pushing the temperature a certain way. And then you add a lot. And, and then, so the fact that I'm able to do all that on the day and push the imagery is, is priceless because, um, you know, if you just do, if you just have Rec 709 or whatever, and you're just doing that, you, you can only go so far, you know, you, you almost like play it safer because you don't want to push the boundaries too much and, Having having a LUT on set, it sounds like, or a LUT on set that's very specific and very tuned to what you want, it allows you to go a little bit further. That's an interesting way to think about it. Well, for that for that type of look, I mean, I you know, I w- I'm not going to do that on every project. For sure, you know, I just don't need to. But um, but for, you know, when I'm going to do that kind of project, I want to go there and, and I want to be able to push. And you know, we had other cinematographers come in to Fargo this season because of me directing and and. Um, and the alternate episodes and, and, you know, they inherited this lot and, you know, they were all had to do to, to, to deal with it. Yeah. And you've talked to, to Pete Consco, I know, and I, I maybe Eric Messer Schmidt about it and just how, um, you know, what it meant to them. And, and uh, you know, but they were able to, to, again, I think step into the look rather quickly because it forced them like, if you were to test a film stock and said, Oh my God, this is super contrasty film stock. You know, we're shooting reversal stock, which is kind of like the slut. It's like shooting reversal film. Wow. And so, you know, I have a third of a uh, stop of latitude, or it's all black. Oh, I got a half stop maybe over on the, expo- the overexposure, or it's blown out. Um, and digital, you know, clipping is not like film, it just doesn't roll off the same. So they ha- all of a sudden they have a new kind of constraints to their known photographic sensibilities. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And like, and for me, like, I don't want to be constrained by my photographic sensibilities. I want to be challenged by my photographic since I want to be, cha- I want my sensibilities to be challenged by the very thing that I'm putting in front of me and, and the uh, restrictions or limitations or context that I'm imposing. You know, I want, I want all those things to to push me. I want to be pushed on a daily basis by, you know, myself, I guess, but it's fine. Let's take a quick break and talk about MZ. Now, MZ is education for creatives, and there has never been a better time to hone your craft, learn more about this filmmaking world that we all know and love. Because, you know, times are a little bit different out there with COVID and some states already are back in lockdown. So we might be spending a lot more time at home than we were hoping for this time. But the best way to spend that time is by learning and getting better so that when we come out of this, you are more skilled and more educated than you were before. And that's what MZ is all about. So when I talk about education for creatives, I mean, it's education for creatives, but also taught by creatives because we all know. You know, the course that you're taking is only as good as the teacher that teaches you. And when we're talking about MZ, we're talking about educators that you know and love. Vincent LaFerre, Shane Hurlbut, Philip Bloom, the ARI Academy is on there. And they're always introducing new courses. Like right now, one of their new courses is 
um, The Art and Technique of Film Editing with Tom Cross, A-C-E. Now, if you don't know who Tom Cross is, you've absolutely seen his films because he edited Whiplash and La La Land, among others. So we're talking about educators at the highest level that are uh, providing education for MZ. Like, this is what it's all about. Now, of course, there are hundreds of hours of high-quality video-based filmmaking education all over MZ, and it covers different things like directing, cinematography, post-production, visual storytelling, and more. Uh, And you, yes, you can buy individual courses, but the best way to experience MZ is to become an MZ Pro member, because with that subscription membership, you have access to the library of footage, uh, to the library of courses, rather. So that is the way to go, and that's what I'm doing, and I strongly suggest you do the same. So how do you learn more about it? Simple. You go to gocreativeshow.com forward slash MZ, M-Z-E-D. Learn more, check it out for yourself, and use this time to get better at your craft with MZ Education for Creatives. I want to talk a little bit about the way you lit Fargo season four, you had mentioned earlier that once you had created this lot, um, this onset lot, it revealed to you that you needed to light the darks a little bit more than you would in a traditional like digital setting. Um, yeah. Were there anything, uh, were there any other accommodations you had to make to light for this lot? And and you can just talk to us about lighting in general, what your philosophy was for this season. Well, yeah, I mean, l- listen, we were shooting, um, African-American skin tone um, that is, you know, and, and then we're, you know, we're doing a, a, a Italians and African-American skin tone together next to each other, which, which is, that's just a challenge. You, you know, you, you have uh, different tonalities there and, um, and then you add a let that's, that's not going to help you. You know, you're like, obviously a lower contrast palette is going to help you there a little bit. And this is like the opposite of that. So, um, you know, uh, so, you know, so in, in, in makeup and wardrobe tests, we little learn a little bit more about how that works. Um, you know, and it, some of it just is light control, but depending on how wide a shot is, how much light control you can do on the set, you know, if it's a super wide shot or on Fargo, we go from wide to closer wides all the time. So, you know, you, you have to be able to balance all of it. And, and so it's just, it it did make the lighting count more and, and like, like you really had to kind of nail the lighting and, and not depend so much on post to kind of help you. Cause sometimes you could do that. Sometimes you can make a value judgment and say, I don't have time to correct the spill. I'll, I'll fix that in, uh, in post. Well, I, I think there was a little less of that in season four, so the lighting had to be a little bit more more accurate, and um, I used hard light maybe a little bit more than I normally do, um, and maybe because of the skin tone and things like that, um, and just the way that light affects affects faces and things like that. So um, I, I used maybe a little bit less soft light than I normally do. Um, not to say I didn't use soft light, but... Um, Definitely, I think the hard light was uh, something that I, I brought back, and and I don't know if that's also part again part of the the period of of how I perceived 1950s in my head because I do I do kind of put on this veil 
over myself uh, when I approach imagery, uh, if I'm trying to create a certain look. Like I try to I try to create looks that I have in my head and, and I try to throw everything at it to do it. Tell me about how you created the look for the mug shots that are in Fargo season four. The, the mug shots uh, were, were very important to me because they were they were portrait images and, and they ended up being stills in, in the uh, episode, but we shot them as live action, you know, digital capture. And so, which was, which is a, it's a great way to capture stills in a way because you, you, you know, you just have so many frames that you can just grab one frame. And, um, but I use these Astro Berlin lenses that uh, were made in the 1800s that were, you know, they were made to shoot black and white. They, they were not ever made to shoot color. There was no color film when these films, these lenses were made. And when I say that, meaning the optics are more tuned to black and white spectrum film. Uh, so, uh, like, you know, um, if they're more red sensitive, uh, you know, uh, just the way they, they uh, take a black and white tonality. And so there was, when I, put the black and white LUT that I created, which is a whole nother thing onto with these lenses. And it, it, you know, they naturally reacted to the tonalities of the wardrobe and the lighting. Um, because, you know, it, it just, the lenses really kind of sang because they, that's, that's what they, they do best black and white. So if I took the, the Zeiss, uh, radiance lenses that we use on our primarily for our narrative, they were the Astro lens were so different in the in the black and white capture that they really to me look like a 1920s to 1950s black and white portrait photography. Oh. You know, and and again that was so important to me that those portraits look and feel like that era. So that lens, those lenses were a huge part of it. I mean, I, we all have shot vintage lenses on digital cameras before. I, I feel like these are the the oldest ones I've used, and um, you know, I I would shoot a, I would shoot a whole narrative with these lenses. I, I really would. Uh, and there was some talk about the black and white episode using these Astro Berlin lenses. I didn't because the the mechanics of them. Yeah, I was going to ask if you had used this uh, lens kit for the black and white episode, but Sounds like no. And I'll put a link to um, Astro yeah. Berlin lenses in the show notes, guys, so you can check it out. Um, but yeah, I, like, there is such a different quality to those mug shots that really make it of the time. So it's it's cool to hear. Uh, can you talk to me a little bit about the the camera package that you chose for the series or packages, I should say? Yeah, so um, this so in season three of Legion, I shot the uh, LF the Alexa LF for the first time. And it was the, you know, it is the studio LF or whatever you want to call it. The, the bigger LF, the very first generation LF, which is a, it's a big camera. Uh, the mini LF mini became available right at the beginning of prep. Like literally we got the cameras out of the boxes and started prepping them. Not always a great situation. You kind of don't want cameras that are brand new out of the box. Yeah. <laughs> it's scary. It, it, it's scary, 
we, 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 you know, I needed them. We were, uh, I do a lot of work with the Ronin and, um, I, I, you know, I put the regular LF on the Ronin on Legion, but, you know, I just wanted a better streamlined, smaller package. And, um, so we use the LF minis and, and then I always carry a regular LF for, uh, one, you know, high speed work so I could get the higher resolutions. And, um, you know, and then, um, uh, this year we were very fortunate to use these Zeiss radiance lenses, which are a special formula of Zeiss Supreme lenses. Um, I was very, uh, lucky to get the first two sets, uh, for production, um, Zeiss gave them to me. I had to sign NDAs. My whole crew had to sign NDAs. We couldn't wow. talk about them until like the middle of the season. Then they they released them. Um, I think they t- took them to Camarage and and uh, showed them. And um, so they we talked about them at the ASC hundred uh, hundred year party. And I said, look, um, I need two sets. If if you're gonna if you want to give me one set, I really need two sets. So I can't even talk about these lenses because I know I need two sets of lenses to to do the amount of work we have to do. So they gave me two sets. Um, they're very special lenses. They were great for, uh, the 1950s period. They're they're just the the tonality of them, the little softer, the, the, the way they handle flares, the coatings. Um, so the LF mini and the Zeiss radiances were the, the workhorse camera package. Uh, we, like I said, we used a Ronin, 90% 90% of the time, it's our remote head, it's our cable cam head, it's our everything uh, head. We don't walk around with it that much. Uh, sometimes we do if we need to do it. We did it. But it's it's just our, you know, it's kind of our workhorse camera on the dolly. Uh, you know, Mitch Dubin, my operator, my main operator, uh, and Tim Milligan, who, who did... Uh, season one, two, and three in Calgary came down with us and he, he did a camera on some of the episodes. Um, and John Connor, who is just, uh, kind of our B camera, more of our second unit guy. And he just go, he goes out and does all that incredible imagery you see transitionally and, uh, stuff like that. You know, they, they do a lot of remote head work and they kind of remove themselves from the camera sometimes. And, and so, uh, the Ronin just becomes indispensable because, we use jibs and cranes quite a lot. We don't use Steadicam at all, and uh, so it's a if it's a we don't do walk and talks to tell you the truth ever yeah. on any Noah Holly show. But if it's that kind of shot that needs a little bit of walk and talk or whatever it is, we just use the crane. We just lay track and do a, do a crane shot. And I like directors that haven't done it that way are always freaked out about it because they're like, why can't we just do a Steadicam? Well. You know, we want it to be as solid as everything else we do because that's just how we feel like the stories should be told. So, um, yeah, I, I the large format it, to me is is uh, is amazing. I, I just love everything about it, um, the the way it renders and captures. I think the Alexa LF and the way it handles color is special. I know it's supposedly the same color science as the regular Alexas. I don't think it is uh and then maybe i've been told this much but uh, there's something about it that is different to me i want to take a few minutes and talk about the black and white episode um 
of Fargo season four. I believe it was episode nine. Um, I, I did not know it was coming because I kind of purposely don't read too much up on on shows that I'm doing interviews for because I just want to see it, you know, unencumbered by opinion and, and you know, feedback from other people. I just want to watch it. So I didn't know it was coming. And all of a sudden, we've now transitioned to do a black and white world. Talk to me about the way you achieved that look and just kind of how that episode came about. Well, that episode, we we always talked about it being black and white. Again, we talked about the whole season being black and white at yeah. one point. And, and, and uh, I'm glad we didn't do that because I, I think the color is just so special. And I, I think when we got to the black and white episode and, you know, there's a, there was a Wizard of Oz kind of motif in the whole episode. Yeah. So black and white. And we, you know, it's black and white to a color transition, you know, in, in the last whatever, five minutes, three minutes of, uh, of the episode. Starts in color, goes to black and white, in zone color. So, yeah, that was a whole nother look. And again, for me, it was like, okay, if I'm going to shoot black and white, I don't want to just take out the color. Yeah. I don't want to, and I don't want to just leave it up to, the final color is to find to find some look or whatever. I've, I've been very disappointed by that. I've done some black and white where I didn't. I just thought I would do more or less a look later, and I've always been disappointed. Like it just didn't achieve the contrast level and the tonality and the texture that I feel black and white is. I've, I shoot a lot of black and white film. Uh, I, I have a very good understanding of it, and and. Black and white Triax, Kodak Triax film of 1950 was a different formula than the current Triax by a lot. I mean, if you look at a, a hmm. any 1940s, 50s black and white Triax image, it just has a different formula than today. The way it handles the tones, uh, the, the, everything about it, the quality of it. So I wanted to, again, make this episode look like the, that film. I wanted it to look like a 1940s Triax image, you know, stepping out of the image out of a still and, and being on screen. And so again, I, I worked with Tony D'Amore and uh, my colorist and said, okay, I want to do in resolve. They have a monochrome feature where you could click this box and, and it goes to monochrome. And it's just like a doing a, black and white conversion in Lightroom for still, where now you're able to use the colors in, in, in that you're capturing to help you with tones and the way yeah. the way the grays render. So it doesn't just desaturate I, and then it's a, throw, no, yeah. you're yeah, you're and you're able to adjust those to to give it a certain uh again, the way uh, hat renders or wardrobe renders or whatever. <clears throat> so I wanted that control. I even went as far as on on the set. I did a resolve. I had a resolve situation on on my. Uh, so I guess I changed up the live grade the way I did it. But we worked in resolve. I was able to do that that tonality and changes in on set. I had that happen to the through the dailies, and then I had to go through to the finals where Tony Diamore was working in that world as well. Again, I also use some more colored filters because black and white, you there's yellow filters, orange filters, red filters, blue filters, uh, you know, that you can use to affect the sky, the skin tone, 
the wardrobe, uh, the foliage, and uh, uh, you know whatever it is. So I again use green. Not I didn't use green. I use colored filters um, to accentuate on the set. But when I'm doing that, I, I was committing it because I was using such a wacky colored filters in front of the camera that to bring that back to color would have been virtually impossible because yeah. the, it would it just wouldn't have worked. Um, so I have a lot of freedom with Noah Hawley and effects and MGM. Like if I make a mistake, I make a mistake. So I just, I basically committed to it. So we built again, another Tri-X LUT with Tony uh, and then I refined it with Ryan McGregor, uh, my DIT on the set. And then I added these filters probably at the, that was my last thing I did. And then I used a lot of grad filters as well as I was like in like stripe indie stripes indie grads. Um, if you talk to my assistant Chris Winterborn, he'll he'll tell you it's just crazy filter tape on stories. And and again today you don't do that because they always think oh we'll do that in post. Yeah. When I was an assistant cameraman when I worked with I worked a lot with Paul Cameron ASC for you know ten years I was his assistant and we used to tape on this is the film days. We used to tape on nine filters all the time because in those days, especially in commercials, you gave them the look. You didn't do it later. You yeah. gave them everything. And that's, I still have that philosophy. So I'm just stacking filters, uh, putting color filters on, pushing the, the colors, uh, different colors in uh, Resolve, and just throwing that all together in this mix to create the Tri-X. And... Um, I think you see it. I, you know, a lot of people have texted me and emailed me about like, what the hell did you do there? It's amazing. Um, you know, and, and again, I just, for me, I have this image in my head of, of, and it's not even my original image in my head. It's just like something I've seen in a 1940s photograph that I, I want to see in a one hour motion picture, <laughs> you know what I mean? And so, um, I think I achieved that, and uh, I think we achieved it. And, and uh, you know, it was a, a combination of all these things. And again, wardrobe, production design, once again, playing a role where I would shoot stills of of texture, of, of any uh, textile or anything that they were going to build furniture with or walls and said, here's how it reacts to this look. You know what I mean? So we were able to hone in uh, the look. And that's what they, you know, when they made black and white films, that's what they did. Yeah. They, they knew this red jacket would would render this way it'd be darker or whatever it is and that's so the, those wardrobe designers knew that in those days obviously when it went to color everything changed but so i again had to reverse engineer it go back and say i you know let's build the production design and the wardrobe based on this is what i'm committing to and, and don't even think about how this will look in color like it will never be in color don't think about it ever that way because you know, I've definitely been on projects where they're like, we'll shoot this in black and white, but you never know. We may go to color. And it's like, no, this is not going to happen. I'm going to I'm going to make sure this is not going to happen because I'm going to make <laughs> it look so bad in color that it will never be. In color. I, I love the grain in that episode, too. The, the grain and the blacks. I mean, everywhere, but you really see it in the blacks. And over the course of the episode, a storm comes and yeah. it, it, it gets darker and the skies get more violent and it just... I mean, it progresses over the over the course of the episode, and this grain gets just so 
ah, oh, it just looks so great. Yeah, I, I mean that that to me, black and white, nineteen fifties had grain. Yeah, <laughs> it wasn't grainless. I mean, yeah, the people were shooting uh, hundred ASA film. I, I, you know, I will, I loved, you know, Robert Frank's The Americans and and the grain that comes from that, the grain that comes from the underexposure and your your you're bringing you're bringing the image up and and you get this inherent grain quality to it. I, I wanted all that and and so again by by me being at the extremes constantly of the exposure, I'm forcing that to happen as well. And I'm just like I'm on the edge all the time about that. I I love that. That to me that's I'm very, I'm very fortunate that I work with the people I do that trust me to do that. So I I can confidently go to the edge and and live on the edge. I don't, you know, I'm I am very calculated, like, look, I I, you know, I haven't based I haven't built my career on failure and, and screwing over people. So I'm all, but I but I do think that the risk is is important. I mean, look, the people out there today making these shows, uh, you know, unbelievable. I mean the crown this season, you know, Adriano is just killing it. We that just guy, had him know, on last week. Yeah, he's just you know I'm such a fan and and he's just like these are the people these are my contemporaries and and they're doing the same thing and so you know I I I want to I want to push them like they push me and I think I do and and uh, so you know that's what happens. Did you shoot that episode with the um the LF as well? That was the LF. Yeah, that was the LF and and the radiance lenses again. Uh, oh. I thought about changing lenses. Um, but I just, I just didn't because of, uh, you know, the mechanics and, and just kind of like the storytelling that we were already doing was working with that system. And, you know, with the large format, again, that the things that you've, we, you and I have talked about a little bit, I, I think previously was to me, that field of view is so, is so great, you know, that you could have this 50 mil, um, depth of field and, and flatness yet it had a 35 field of view uh, is so great to me. I mean, that was, I used the 50 a lot at the seasons, like even for masters, I, I would pull walls and use the 50 for a wide shot. Like that's something we never did in, in any of the seasons. I, we, you know, I just never used that lens like that. And, you know, but not only did I have the 35, but I, I, it was a flatter kind of scope. Um, so that was working for me and I, I didn't want to go away from that. And I, I did think about using some vintage lenses, but something told me, you know what, I, I'm going to do so much with so many other things that I could leave the optics alone a little bit, you know, and uh, I thought about shooting the Astroberg lens, but mechanically, uh, I thought that would have suffered. Um, the, the set is not as robust. There's not as many lenses. Um, I couldn't get two sets like that. I don't yeah. think that that would have made it trickier for just additional photography that, that, um, uh, we did. So, um, yeah, no, it's, it's the same lenses, same set, just radically different, uh, color theory approach and filtration. The last thing I want to talk about is your, experience directing these episodes because you did episode five six and seven of fargo season so four right 
I did five, six, seven, and 11. Oh, you did 11 too. Okay, great. So I have, as of this moment, I have not seen 11 because it hasn't come out yet. But um, I have seen five, six, and seven. And I, I want to talk to you about that transition from cinematographer to now director. And, you know, how you kind of approach now directing these scenes that you are, I'm sure you're always thinking about the cinematography in the back of your mind, but you now have to focus entirely on the performances in a different way. What is that transition like? Well, it's, it, it starts with, I mean, this, this isn't my first time directing, which is good because that, that would have been a tough first directing uh, <laughs> show um, for sure. But I mean, look, I'm very lucky where I, I have a deep connection with Fargo, this, the, the storytelling. I, I've been part of the storytelling devices, the techniques. I, 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 I'm very in tune with what the show is. I think, you know, the rhythm of it and the way you go from comedy drama to comedy or vice versa in one cut. So I, I, I'm very in tune with that. And if anything, I'm a, I help directors with that. You know, I'm, I'm there to remind them of that or there to encourage them. They're doing the right thing. So I, that, that I already have built in. I'm a huge fan of so many cinematographers. I, 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 um, I, I don't, I don't compete with cinematographers. I, I think cinematographers are amazing. And, and there's so many, I'm just such a fan of, of all of them and so many of them. And so I'm so fortunate that I, you know, I'm able to like go after very talented cinematographers and, and I'm very fortunate that they want to work with me. And, um, I, you know, Pete Conskill is someone that I had tried to hire on Legion that I never worked with before, but I, I was a big fan of his work. And, um, he, I guess he was a fan of my work and, you know, and I, I think any cinematographer coming in to work with a director that is a cinematographer and, and maybe even someone like that, like me, that is known to be a risk taker and all these things. And, and they may think that I, I, I command more of the cinematography than I do, but I don't want to, I don't want to micromanage the, the DP. I want to hire a great DP I want them to, I want to collaborate with them. <clears throat> you know, I have strong visuals in my head and normally they're about, you know, it's, it's just, it's the storytelling visual mm. <clears throat> and, um, but the lighting and things like that and, and uh, the contribution they bring about, Hey, what about this? Or what about this? I want that. And I do give up that. I really do. And um, if anything, I want to be. I want to remove myself even more from the visuals. I think. Um, is it is it freeing it, in a way to just focus entirely on performance? It, it, I I have always been attracted to performance, and it's weird because I think um, I've always, as a, as a cinematographer, like early on, I was always kind of attracted to it, and 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 that's what pushed people to want to hire me as a director because they're like, hey, you need you need to be directing because you're you're mind is thinking about these things more than most cinematographers. No. Um, and uh, I just never thought about it. I just, I, this is the way I thought. So I'm, you know, I was always trying to create emotion with my cinematography. Um, and um, so what a better, what a better way to create emotion than work with actors and tell story. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, I want to remove myself more from the visuals where um I'm not making a decision based on the visual. 
Yeah. Meaning I'm not putting someone in front of a window just because I think I know visually that's better. I think I made that mistake this season. I don't want to make that mistake again. I want to, I want to choose the, I want to choose the right blocking and storytelling for the service to script and not have my cinematography proudness come in. Um, I, I know that someone like Fincher who is a very well-rounded visualist, you know, he, I, I would like to talk to him about that because I'm, you know, he's a guy who's, who, who definitely imagery is a, is a very important part of his whole big package. And I don't want that. I don't want that not to be part of my world, but I really like working with actors and, and, and emotions and dramatics and uh, comedy and all these things and these textures. And I want to, I really enjoy that part of, of my life, but I do want to make a well-crafted image, you know, a motion picture. And, and I think by hiring the Pete Conskulls and the Eric Messerschmitts of the world is how you do that because, you know, you hire them and, and they, they speak the same language. I understand them. And, and they, they, you know, they're completely different cinematographers and they're completely different than me. Like their philosophies of lighting are, are I don't even know how to light like Eric Messerschmitt or Pete Conskull. I do not. I tell them that all the time. But that doesn't mean I look at their work and say, I don't understand this, but I, I don't do that. I, I look at their work and I like it. I love their work, but I just don't know how to do that. So, um, you know, that's that's my goal to always hire just cinematographers that I'm a fan of and, and that I can collaborate with. And and the, the more I separate myself, I think I'm going to become a better director. Hmm. So, um, you know, I've, I've been very fortunate where I've, I've done a, a movie and several uh, other episodes of television and and this this year being able to do four uh you know and and really kind of this season just i've I've been more i've always been a huge part of all of fargo and and all its uh production and this year i was even more involved than ever we came back after covid and and did not episode nine and ten uh so that had its own challenges and um you know, but we we pulled it off, and and uh, the crew was just stellar, and everybody was just so happy to be back and finishing what we started. Because if you can imagine having the 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 plug pulled uh, on just a Thursday, and you don't even know when you're going to return, if you're going to come back, uh, maybe the show will never get aired. Uh, you know, it's just it's a terrible, terrible feeling. So to come back, to go into production, and and then keep it at a level that we've been doing, you know, because there was a lot of talk about like, let's just get this done. And, you know, it was, we were one of the first shows back and no one knew if we could, if we could get through two days or three days or a week or so like every day was a, a milestone, wow. you know? And, uh, and I feel like the last two episodes, you know, I don't feel like anybody's going to pull them out and say, Oh, these guys, you know, they were under COVID. So, you know, they had to take take some concessions. We didn't make any concessions. We uh, we did the same thing we always do. Let's take a quick break and talk about collaborative editing with PostLab. Now, PostLab is a collaboration tool for Final Cut Pro and Premiere, and it really is going to change the way that you work for the better. Now, aside from Always saving your documents locally, PostLab syncs all the changes to your whole team wherever they are. So you're not zipping up files and sending them back and forth. 
those days are over. It also makes sure that you'd never have any broken files. Now, anybody that edits, that edits knows that two people working on the same file at the same time is an accident waiting to happen. So with PostLab, the second you start working on a document, it locks it from all the other team members, and it shows you who's doing what, so you can keep track of everything without having broken files. And it also has something they call Time Machine 2.0, and it really is the next evolution of Time Machine, because you can browse the history of each library, jump back and forth between versions, and find the particular edit you're looking for within a minute. And it opens exactly how you left it, down to the blinking playhead. So this changes the game for collaborative editing. And the great news is, first of all, it's amazing news that this thing even exists. But even better than that is our Go Creative Show listeners get three free months to give PostLab a try. And all you got to do is go to gocreativeshow.com forward slash PostLab, P-O-S-T-L-A-B. Check it out for yourself. This will change the way you edit for the better. Try your three free months at gocreativeshow.com forward slash PostLab. I wanted to talk to you about how, what was the experience like directing Chris Rock? Chris and I really bonded. I, you know, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of a, uh, when I grew up, I was very shy. I was a very shy person. I, I still am shy. I, I push through the boundaries of that. I, I really, it's a big work in progress to push through the boundaries of my shyness. And may, some people will probably say, I didn't know Dan is shy at all, but I, I really push through the boundaries of it and I'm getting better and better at it. So when you talk about working with I, iconic actors, um, for some reason, I'm able, it's just like I push through the shyness on a day-to-day -day basis. I'm able to do that with, with actors like him. Mm. And, um, um, and, and somehow they respond to that. I, you know, uh, I worked with Uma Thurman was another one that, that I had to direct that I was just, you know, you know, she's Uma Thurman and she, and she is who she is. And, and it's like, a, and I was able to bond with her very easily. Um, and so Chris and I bonded really well. And I, I think that it was an incredible experience. Uh, we may do another project together, uh, maybe. Uh, it was such a good experience. And, um, uh, you know, like I said, I, I don't know why, but I, I should be terrified. And, and I'm, I'm not. I, 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 have to, I have to go talk to the actors. And, I, and to direct an actor like that, to, direct, to, to go give a directorial note, to uh, someone like him or yeah. even a Jesse Buckley or something like that, just an incredible actor. It's daunting because you have to, you have to deliver it in a certain way, but I love actors. I think actors are amazing They're I could not reveal myself like an actor does. Mm. Okay. I'm in awe of that. And so I, and I respect that. And I think I, I show that in the, my, the way I talk to them, the way I present things to them, um, I, I get their, you know, I have to get their confidence and, and I work at that so that when I'm able to give a note that they, they, they see it as just not, not me trying to get my point across, but Hey, try, maybe try this, you know, cause remember the script, it says this. So it's a, it's a collective thing that we're collaborating on and, and not just my vision, you know, and I like to think that that's what we're doing on the whole project. So, um, Working with Chris was amazing. I, I, watching him kind of 
grow and get stronger with the material. And, uh, you know, I can't wait to ever seize the finale, the final episode, because I think, uh, Chris just like seals the deal in, in the final episode. And I, I, I was very excited to be part of that. Now, I want to ask you what your favorite character was to direct, but I don't, I don't mean actor. I mean, character. Was there one that you were looking forward to the most? Looking, looking forward to? Yeah. Which one was your favorite? Well, favorite, maybe. I mean, did you have a favorite character to direct? Somebody that you could really dig into? And maybe it's somebody that sort of has characteristics of yourself or something that you uh, were wanting to explore I mean, I, I mean, Salvatore Esposito was, was some, was bringing so much to the party, like, you know, I, like I said, I seen him in Gomorrah and, and I thought he was a, you know, a terrific actor, but I saw that he showed up with something and he was trying something. And, and it, I think in, in episode five, you know, we do that, that operatic moment yeah. when he goes across and he crosses the street before he shoots the the kid and the bartender. And that was something that I thought about doing on the way to work. I was driving to work and I just said, uh, I want to try something. And it wasn't in the script. And, and I just thought, I saw something in this stunt rehearsal the night before that he did for this, for the episodes with seven now it is. What did you say? And no, he just was doing this, this little dance thing with this knife. And, and, and I just said, I, I want to make this uh, part of a bigger thing. So I'm driving to work and I'm thinking about it. And I, and I, 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 re, I, you know, I really work with music a lot. I'm always have music in my head about so many things. I'm always listening to music and, uh, and if anybody who, who has seen me direct, I use music on the set all the time. I, I like, I like putting people in, in certain moods, with music because I, I don't think I can convey the emotion that I feel when I hear music in words. So I'm like, I want you to listen to the song. And sometimes I play the song during the take. If it's, if it's not going to, if we're going to, if it's going to be a, you know, music over it or something. And so I just, I, I found this Italian opera and I said, I want to play this music. And I talked to him about this little thing I saw him do in the, in the stunt tape. And we did it. And, you know, it, it bookends the scene. He comes across the street, he's, he's dancing, and then he kills them, and then he does this thing at the end. And, it, you know, it was, again, you talk about risk-taking. It's not in the script. Uh, I don't know how we would have cut around it. We couldn't have cut around it. And I just, but I knew, like, he was bringing so much to the table, and he was, like, evolving as a, as a character that... Uh, yeah, it was fun, you know, and it was it was like it was that was not saying that there's other the other actors weren't you know it was just different, but he was just you know, and I I felt like it was a shining moment for him. I felt like it was like he really it it changed where his character was going, and I I, I think he wanted to do something like that. It just hadn't it hadn't been presented yet. I noticed a difference in his character from that episode on too. Like he he. He comes into his own. And I also think the other character that comes into his own is Otis in those three yeah. episodes that, that you directed. And one of the themes uh, really of the whole show is this idea of power struggling, fighting for control, fighting for power. I feel like Otis is such a great character because he's fighting for all of those things, but within himself for yeah. him having to overcome so much as a character. 
And I just kind of want to like end our conversation about directing and, and our conversation for the show with this idea of directing power struggles, directing characters that are fighting with themselves, with their inner demons. What is your approach to drawing that out of these characters? Yeah, I I think with, a, with an actor like Jack Hudson, who's, who's such a strong character. I mean, and, and you're talking about a guy who's who's, you know, by the time I I started working with him directorially, you know, he had already uh, been working on that character. Obviously, the arc changes within five, six, and seven. You know, so I, I have to, I have to be an observer a bit. But my thing is to always to put them. I think if you put an actor in the right situation, like I think if you put them in the wrong situation, there, especially an actor like Jack, that you're you're gonna throw them off. Like it, it could be even the blocking or, uh, you know, because they react. Their characters reacting based on where they are in the room. I mean, that's how that's how involved they are as actors. And uh, so, if you just say, "Oh, just stand over here and, and do that, do this," you're doing them a disservice. So you you need to like put them at ease and put them in the right spot. And and even even the way you you block the scene and even the way you execute the scene of when you do their close up versus someone else's close up or you know the way you execute a scene and and build it i think gives them the confidence to to bring out more and and if they in the scene feeling a certain way like like you know what that really felt good that felt right then it, the next scene's going to be even easier because you know you've shown them that that you you do care about them and their space and and how they're portrayed and and they could give it up because like i feel the same way to me when i'm as a photographer you know i don't want to be thinking about the mechanics of the camera i and i don't i want to be i'm thinking about the imagery that i'm creating sometimes i go weeks without even touching the camera mm. literally okay the camera is and i think it's the same with for an actor like the minute they they're not thinking about the camera they're not thinking about I hope I'm being portrayed correctly. I, I, you know, that I, I make them feel like they're in good hands and they're watching out for me so that, you know, if I do give them a note, it, the note is about, Hey, what about, you know, is, is that, what about this? Is this available to you? Uh, look over here. Look, you know, there's your, there's your, your girlfriend on the wall or whatever it is. You're, you're giving them maybe more context for the scene that's kind of my, my role for, you know, because, you know, they're reading the same script I am. They, you know, who am I to tell them how to play their character? Um, and you have such, you know, especially a strong actor like that, that, that is just bringing something in. Does Jack, you know, he's thinking about the whole, now he has never, he hasn't seen every episode. Like he's getting the episodes like we are. So he doesn't, he might not even know how he dies when we're doing episode five, right? So, um, you know, he's got, he's kind of trusting that part of the story. I may know he's going to die in a certain episode and, and I may give him, I may not tell him, I'm not going to tell him that, but I may give him a little context of where this is going to, you know, just by the way. Did people ever say, did, did anybody say to you like, 
Are you? T- am I dying in this episode? Am I dying? Yeah. Look, what's going on here? <laughs> yeah. No, I mean they're gonna know they're gonna by that episode, but they may be dying. You know, this may be a big setup. Obviously, there's a lot of setups. Yeah. For 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 how they're gonna go, and uh, I may know. I may or may not know that. Um, you know, I I I am someone who gives someone maybe a little heads up because it may look. I'm just gonna let you know this. Here's something that may happen later. It might inform you for now. So you know, my my uh, you know again, my my goal is to to make actors completely comfortable, and, and uh, it always has been that way, even as a cinematographer. And um, and then my what I can give to them means more. It just does because then they they trust they trust me and they they know that I, whatever I'm saying is just you know is for the right reasons. Well, the season is just incredible. Like, I really love this show, and I think you guys just nailed it with season four of Fargo. Um, Your episodes were just fantastic. The ones you directed, I absolutely loved them, and I think those were big turning points for a lot of major characters. And the whole season is out by the time you guys are watching this, but I have yet to see the finale uh, and just cannot wait to see it because I didn't even know that you directed the last one. So this is going to be a lot of fun to see. Um, Yeah, any other sort of last thoughts for our audience before we head out about the show or just about, you know, cinematography as a craft? We have a lot of young listeners that may be looking to kind of break into this industry. Anything you might want to say to them? No, I'll say two things. I, you know, I know a lot of people's first season of Fargo is season four because of the pandemic and I think the, the lack of uh, a lot of programming. And so a lot of people are tuning in to season four, which is great because you don't need to see the previous seasons to enjoy it. But I, I think if uh, when you're done with season four, you're going to get a little uh, insight maybe into uh, a previous season and, and um, you know, go back and, and, you know, start from the beginning or don't even start from it. Start at two, go to two to one to three. I don't care. Yeah. But, you know, because there's a little, there's, you know, there's little, uh, there's definitely some payoffs with all of them, but you don't need to see any of them. So, uh, you know, if you've, for as you're experiencing it for the first time, go back because they're all they're all different and wonderful. Um, you know, again, I, I'm a fan of so many cinematographers, young cinematographers, experienced cinematographers, you know, seasoned cinematographers. Uh, I, I learn a lot from younger cinematographers, people on Instagram. I watch a lot of Vimeo. Uh, I, I'm constantly moved. I, you know, I. I w- there was a point where I was going to hire a, a somebody, a young woman that uh, I saw her film, uh, her short that she did in film school that uh, was nominated for Academy short short film. I was just moved by by this short film, and I, I thought, "I'm like, oh my god, her work is amazing," and uh, you know, so I'm I'm very affected by. Every everybody in anything, and it, like you know, uh, it doesn't need to be uh, a Roger Deakins. It could be literally somebody who just is. I saw their short, their thesis film from film school. Uh, you know, I I feel like that's that keeps me more in touch. Actually, the these thesis films, and um, so you know, I'm a big fan of that work. So you know, everybody's just doing incredible work. They're pushing me. I think they're keeping me relevant. So, um, you know, it's, uh, I'm excited about the future. Fargo season four available now on FX and Hulu. 
And you guys should definitely check out season four as well as the other three. And Dane has been on for all four seasons. So after you see the season, go to the Go Creative Show website, search for it, and you'll find his interview talking about that season. Each one is so different that you really want to dive in and learn how he shot these things. So Dana, thank you so much for coming back on Go Creative Show. We love having you. Your work is absolutely fantastic. And uh, fingers crossed for a season five. We'll see. Um, I mean, I, you know, uh, just like everybody else, I'm, I'm reading little tidbits in the in the trade sometimes, and and uh, it you know it always depends on the success of the you know if season four is taken a certain way, then you might see season five. So uh, the more people that watch the show, you know, the more season five is available. There you go. You guys right there are yeah, are yeah. able to make this yeah. next season happen. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much, Dana. I really appreciate it. I'll put a link to all of your stuff in the show notes so you guys can check out Dana's work. Uh, but thank you so much and have a great Thanksgiving. All right. Thanks so much. Always great being on the show. Uh, the new visual medium, uh, go creative. Uh, I'm all for it. So uh, thanks so much. And uh, we'll see what the next uh, show is. All right, I want to thank Dana Gonzalez for coming back on Go Creative Show and talking to us all about Fargo Season 4. I loved this season and loved our conversation even more. And if you did too, let us know in the comments. We love to hear what you guys think. Of course, I want to thank our producer, Connor Crosby. You can find him at ignitionvisuals.com and Matt Russell. He and his team at gainstructure.com. Mix and master and make the show sound so good. So you can find them there and hire them for your own projects as well. Gainstructure.com. Of course, our sponsors, MZ Education for Creatives and Post Lab, Stress-Free Collaboration and Final Cut Pro and Premiere. Without these guys, the show wouldn't exist. So please support those that support us. And of course, follow us on your favorite social media app, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. And of course, subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app by searching Go Creative Show and clicking subscribe. All things from today's episode and previous episodes are in the show notes at gocreativeshow.com. So check that out for yourself. And we will see you next week on another episode of your favorite cinematography podcast, Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers.